Stanford University. Okay, good evening. Thank you so much for coming. And I meant for this to be an overview. We could, uh, you know, I'll be happy to answer anybody's questions afterwards if this is not detailed enough. Um, so basically, I thought the objectives of this talk would be one, to define what celiac disease is, also understand some of the epidemiology, as well as understand some of the basic pathophysiology. And we could, we'll discuss about how the diagnosis is made and discuss treatment. So what is celiac disease? Well, celiac disease is basically a permanent intolerance to gluten. Gluten is a storage protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye. It's made up of, a family of some families of proteins called glutenins and gliadins. In the case of celiac disease, gliadins are the toxic component. And uh, basically, uh, repeated gluten exposure causes chronic inflammation in the small intestines. And this is, uh, basically drives an immune response that, in a sense, attacks the intestines. So it's attacking our own body, and it's considered an autoimmune disease. Uh, celiac disease is also known as celiac sprue or gluten-sensitive enteropathy, also non-tropical sprue. So how common is celiac disease? Uh, it's about one in 100, it, it affects about one in 133 people in the United States. And this translates to about two million people. And among people affected, uh, among people with affected first degree relatives, meaning someone who has a parent, a child, or a sibling, the risk of having celiac disease is actually one in 22. So it's very common. It's also associated with uh, other autoimmune diseases, including type 1 diabetes, autoimmune thyroid disease, autoimmune liver disease, Addison's, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, Down syndrome, and Turner's syndrome. So before we get into what, how the celiac disease causes injury, I thought we'd discuss what the small intestine normally does. And basically, this is a cartoon that I borrowed uh, from the internet. And what it shows is uh, basically the gastrointestinal tract. And the small intestine is kind of jumbled up here in the middle. So the small intestine, which is basically um, what you see all jumbled up in the middle, is about 20, 20 to 25 feet long. And it's lined with very tiny finger-like projections that we call villi. And these, so this is a small intestine. It's very long. And these, this is uh, the lining of the small intestine. So pretend it's been cut open. Um, and the lining is basically very tiny finger-like projections that are called villi. And 
Uh, after the wheat ingests food and it gets chewed to small particles, this is where it get, gets absorbed. And this cartoon is just a more detailed version of what's going on. Uh, what you see here, this hollow tube represents the small intestine. Inside you see the lining uh, with all the tiny villi. Um, and this unit is very important. Uh, it has blood supply and also drainage. Of, uh, and what it basically does is after, when the nutrients are arrive at the small intestine all broken down and need to be absorbed, this is where they get absorbed. And the problem in celiac disease is, is that this unit is injured because that's where the inflammation is going on. So as a result, you're not absorbing some really important nutrients. Um, and this, in a sense, is, a, is the problem. When a person with celiac disease ingests or uses any products containing gluten, his or her immune system reacts by attacking and injuring the small intestine. Um, so in talking about what causes celiac disease, well, it's, there's not one known, one, only one cause, and it seems to be an interplay between genetics. So you have to, write, to have the right genetic makeup also, there's defects in immunity, and also environment plays a role. By environment, I basically mean gluten in this case. Um, in terms of genetics, there's been two genes that are associated with uh, celiac disease that we're going to talk a little bit more about. When I talk about immunity, I mean the body's defenses against pathogens. And it's broken down into innate immunity and adaptive immunity. Innate immunity is the evolutionary conserved hardwired defense against pathogens that's nonspecific. So we're talking about the barriers, um, uh, like the, the skin barrier and barriers that protect us from, from bacteria that could um, take over our bodies. Adaptive uh, immunity, which is more along the lines of much more specific, so this, this involves inflammatory cells and uh, including T cells, which we will talk a little bit more about as well. And these cells are specialized to protect us against um, uh, pathogens, either bacteria or viruses. And um, in celiac disease, it appears that the immune system is, uh, is affected and, also, and plays a role. So not only does, is there a problem with the immunity, the, you have to have the right genetic makeup, and uh, in this context, gluten will become, um, will trigger inflammation. So what is this cartoon? This is um, a cartoon that I borrowed from a review article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it's basically a, like a very detailed version of what's going on in the villi at a molecular level. Uh, here you have the lumen of the intestine, so that's where uh, the nutrients are coming from. And these cells represent basically the barrier that exists between um, the lumen and 
the rest of the small intestine where uh, it meets the, the blood flow and everything else. And what's happening, what happens in celiac disease is that there's uh, increased permeability, so now this barrier is not as, um, as efficient as it is in normal people. So uh, the gluten peptides, and remember, gliadin is the, the one uh, that is the toxic component here, can go through these, the cell barrier and interact with the inflammatory cells that are called T cells. Now, in order for the T cells to be able to recognize gliadin, they have to have expression of the genes uh, that I talked about, DQ2 and DQ8. And this is what you see here. And to make matters, uh, to make gliadin even more toxic, there is an enzyme in the small intestine that converts gliadin from just run-of-the-mill gliadin to a more uh, active form, which is much more attractive to the T cells. So once the T cells uh, or the inflammatory cells recognize this toxic gliadin, what happens is that uh, chemicals known as cytokines are released, and this culminates in inflammation. And this inflammation causes injury to the cells and leads to uh, what we call villus atrophy. And when the villi are um, injured, nutrients are not absorbed as well. So let's talk about the genetics. So I talked about these two genes, DQ2 and DQ8, which are expressed in the inflammatory cells. And they're required for this gliadin toxic peptide to be, um, to be recognized. Uh, so it turns out that over 95 to 97% of, of celiac disease cases have one of these two genes, either DQ2 or DQ8. And um, these, these cells, just to reiterate, they're present in the inflammatory cells. And it's through these uh, genes that uh, gliadin is recognized, or the, the gluten peptide gliadin is, is recognized as a pathogen. DQ2 is the more common one. It's found in 90% of celiac disease patients. DQ8 is, occurs in about 5% of the cases. Uh, in, of interest is that over 20 to 30% of normal healthy people have DQ2, and about 10% of normal individuals have DQ8, yet they don't have celiac disease. So even though they seem to be a requirement for developing this, the disease, having the genes doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you will have celiac disease, but it, it does. Having these genes will increase your risk of developing celiac disease. It also illustrates that it's an interplay between the environment and also these other factors that we talked about. So what does celiac disease look like to us when we're, we're, we're looking endoscopically? On the left is a normal uh, picture of a small intestine, and on the right is somebody with celiac disease. And what I'd like to point, draw your attention to is that here, it's a very uniform carpet-like lining. Uh, so the, the villi are very well-preserved. And um, 
basically with ongoing inflammation, what happens is that there is scarring, there's, an, there's uh, what we call scalloping, um, and the villi are, lose their integrity. Um, and we also see a lot of what we call mosaic, mosaic patterns, so it's very, it could be very patchy, like one, one uh, part of the small intestine could look almost normal, whereas the other part could look completely denuded. Uh, and uh, there's also, in severe cases, you could see ulcerations. So what are the consequences of celiac disease? So we talked about how important the small intestine is to absorbing uh, nutrients. And basically, one of the consequences of active disease is malnutrition. And there's also malabsorption. And the key ingredients that are nutrients that are lost here are calcium, iron, vitamin D, the fat-soluble vitamins, which includes vitamin D, also electrolytes and water. And this could lead to anemia and osteoporosis. Uh, also, uh, it could lead to liver disease and, in some cases, also cancer of the small intestines. So what are the, some of the common symptoms of celiac disease? Well, since the small intestine is uh, highly affected, usually, it's, it makes sense to think that it would have a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms. And some of the, the symptoms that we see that are most commonly see are abdominal pain and bloating, chronic diarrhea, vomiting. We could even see constipation, which it is a little atypical, but could be seen. Uh, but also pale, foul, smelling, or fatty stools, and weight loss. Interestingly, however, there's a lot of other symptoms that have nothing to do with the uh, GI tract or that are not gastrointestinal symptoms. And one of the most common things is iron deficiency anemia, uh, fatigue. We people often complain about bone pain and arthritis. Also, uh, neural symptoms like neuropathy, numbness in the hands and feet, seizures, um, and also uh, some rashes for celiac disease is specifically something called dermatitis hyperdeformis that we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, but it's, it's, this is not surprising either because uh, the intestine is the point where a lot of, like I said, the nutrients, very essential nutrients are absorbed and these nutrients are required for many processes around the, in, in the human body. So it makes sense that we, could, we would see such global um, symptoms. And the pie chart here just is uh, uh, one investigator's um, study basically looking at how frequent the different uh, symptoms manifest. So because celiac disease affects so many aspects of the human body, uh, during the uh, NIH Consensus Development Conference in 2004, they came up with some classifications that I wanted to share with you. Classical celiac disease is a celiac disease that we've known about for many years, which uh, the symptoms that we see are attributed to 
the gastrointestinal uh, injury and malabsorption. Um, atypical celiac disease, uh, basically, we see a lot of extraintestinal manifestations. So not, not much by way of gastrointestinal diseases, but um, we see a lot of other uh, symptoms like what I showed you in the second slide. Silent celiac disease refers to individuals who are asymptomatic, but they have uh, positive blood tests. And when we look at the biopsy, uh, at the actual small intestine and take biopsies, we see villous atrophy. Latent celiac disease is defined by having positive blood tests and also the small intestine is, uh, is normal, but the small intestine is normal in biopsy. And finally, refractory celiac disease is people who have true celiac disease, but they don't respond to a gluten-free diet. We're going to talk more about treatment shortly. Or they stop responding to a gluten-free diet. And how is the disease uh, diagnosed? So we uh, have some very good blood tests available now. Um, and these include uh, anti-tissue transglutaminase. So this is uh, antibodies against this uh, molecule called TTG. Is, uh, if you remember, when I talked about the pathophysiology, the enzyme that makes the gliadin more attractive to the T cells is TTG. So there's, an, uh, there's uh, antibodies that are made to this enzyme, which we could detect on the blood tests. We, could al we also have antibodies called anti-endomesium and uh, also for deaminated gliadin peptide. So when TTG acts on gliadin, it makes, makes a form that's called deaminated, and this is what we detect. And these blood tests are very good in the sense that they have good sensitivity, which means that they're good at picking up the disease. They also have very good specificity, meaning that if they're negative, the likelihood of having celiac disease is, is low. Intestinal biopsy is still the gold standard. Um, and we do still have see some false negatives on the blood test. And what we look for in the small intestine is what, like the picture that I showed you. We're looking for nodularity, we're looking for scalloping or notching of the small intestine, mucosa, and we're also looking for mosaic patterns. Celiac disease could be a little tricky to diagnose in that it could be very patchy. Most of what's affected is the proximal uh, small intestine or the, um, the very first part of the, the uh, small intestine. Um, but you could have areas that look normal alongside areas that are highly affected. Uh, microscopically, when we're looking, what we look for is uh, erosion of the villi or something called villus atrophy uh, and also migration of, of some inflammatory cells called intraepithelial lymphocytes. Finally, um, dermatitis herpetiformis is an intensely itchy, blistering rash that affects about 15% of people with celiac disease. Interestingly, a lot of the people who have this do not have uh, intestinal symptoms. The rash usually occurs in the elbows, knees, and buttocks. Uh, if antibodies and biopsies of the rash are positive for 
dermatitis herpetiformis, then an intestinal biopsy is not required to make the diagnosis. Um, nowadays, we also pick up celiac disease and screening of uh, first-degree uh, relatives of people who have celiac disease. And uh, also, in, when um, we have uh, like certain symptoms like unexplained iron deficiency anemia, uh, fat malabsorption, we are very keen on looking for celiac disease. Oh, I put this slide in here because I wanted to remind myself that, to tell you that whenever we have to evaluate for celiac disease, basically it must be done while the patient's taking gluten. And the reason for that is, um, basically, I, I see a lot of patients in clinic who have read that uh, you know, gluten products could cause bloating, abdominal pain. So um, they self-medicate by omitting gluten and then are interested in knowing whether they have uh, celiac disease. Well, the way that celiac disease is treated is by omitting gluten. And um, basically, once gluten is out of the diet, in most cases, the mucosa begins to heal. So we could easily have false negative uh, blood tests. And also, the mucosa could look very normal in someone who's not uh, consuming any gluten at all, despite having gluten, if that makes sense. So basically, once somebody's diagnosed with, with uh, celiac disease, in terms of management, we are interested in looking for a variety of different processes because many things could be affected. Um, and on a first visit after a diagnosis, we're likely to check a complete blood count, look at iron levels, look at liver function tests, vitamin D and calcium levels, as well as thyroid function tests. Um, and generally, we, rec we follow bone mineral density because osteoporosis, uh, because of the malabsorption of the vitamin D. Um, um, osteoporosis is very common, and we also monitor it after starting a gluten-free diet. And our recommendation is basically anyone with celiac disease should be on calcium and vitamin D, and also should receive the regular vaccinations that are required, um, that are recommended, like the pneumococcal vaccine and the yearly flu shot. In treatment, uh, basically, gluten exclusion or a gluten-free diet is the only effective treatment that we have available. And this requires a permanent lifestyle change. Um, and in terms of the gluten-free diet, there's some obvious sources of gluten and there's some hidden sources. And basically, um, here is products that we know have gluten. Um, the, these are wheat-based products. Uh, so beer, crackers, bread, pasta. However, there's a lot of sources of, that you wouldn't think would have gluten but actually do contain, uh, like soy sauce. Uh, a lot of soy sauces do contain gluten. Uh, also some malt from barley, vinegars, some flavorings and cereals. 
medications. Uh, and sometimes there's a medication that's been safe for a patient for years, then the manufacturers changed or the lot number changes, and all of a sudden it's a problem. That's because sometimes the binders that are used for medications could contain gluten. And um, there have been instances where the companies just change what they use to bind the, the active ingredients together. So um, we ask our patients, basically ask the pharmacist, check the packet insert if there's concern. But there's also some hygiene and other products that could be ingested that may contain gluten, like toothpaste, uh, lip products, shampoo, and uh, even glue on the envelopes. Um, in some foods that do not innately have gluten, like French fries, could uh, have, could acquire, could get mixed in with gluten, I guess, if uh, it's prepared with in the same container where um, gluten products are, are um, cooked. And uh, processed foods are also a place uh, that there's usually a lot of gluten. And I was surprised to find that also Play-Doh. So basically, wheat-free doesn't necessarily mean gluten-free. And it's, uh, you always have to be vigilant. So what can you eat? So these are some of the grains that are safe. Um, and basically, um, you, you still have to be careful to make sure that the source where these come from are uh, reliable and um, that these are not mixed in with any gluten-containing products. So as you could imagine, it's very difficult to adhere to a gluten-free diet. And this has been the subject of many uh, research studies. And um, this study done by Dr. Leffler and, and colleagues basically followed a cohort of patients and kept uh, very detailed diaries. And they found that uh, the factor, among the factors affecting adherence to the diet include the presence of other food intolerances, concern over costs, subjective and objective perceptions of the gluten-free diet, the ability to follow the diet outside of the home, and also uh, the ability to adhere to the diet irrespective of the mood and stress. And in terms of monitoring adherence, this is a very difficult problem because we don't have a standardized way of monitoring adherence. And at the moment, uh, nutritionist evaluation uh, is the gold standard. And unfortunately, there, are, there is not, uh, many of the nutritionists uh, available are not uh, celiac specialists. Um, so the evaluation should be done by someone who specializes in celiac disease. Also, we, what the studies have shown is that serologic tests or those blood tests that we talked about making the diagnosis are not always reliable. In some cases, those antibodies come down with the treatment, but not necessarily. So it, they, aren't, uh, they haven't proven to be a reliable way of following whether someone is taking in gluten or not. Some experts advocate repeating endoscopies, but this is a costly approach and also 
each time that the person has an endoscopy, there's a risk of a complication. And um, in terms of when someone goes on a gluten-free diet and there is, uh, they haven't responded. So this is the, what also, again, Dr. Leffler and colleagues looked at is like these are the, the main reasons why the patient isn't getting better. The biggest one is that somehow they're still um, consuming, the patients are still consuming gluten. And people could be very, very careful, but it's, it's sometimes very hard to figure out exactly what the source of the hidden gluten is. And that's when a, a very experienced nutritionist would be very helpful. If this is uh, adequately excluded, then there's other diseases that co coexist with celiac disease that need to be explored and treated. Um, and here, this, I found this list of uh, basically tips to avoid cross-contamination um, with gluten at home. And basically, the bottom line is like keeping the gluten-free products clearly marked and separate from um, products containing gluten. Um, so we suggest designating shelves in a cupboard or refrigerator to make sure that you do that. Um, and also uh, avoid sharing items like peanut butter, uh, butter, mayonnaise, um, so as not to cross-contaminate your products. And um, also uh, avoiding using like the same toaster uh, keep uh, separate uh, gluten-free baking utensils. Avoid um, handling flour and things like this. Uh, and also just using, replacing some of the old pots and, and spoons uh, often. And finally, I just wanted to leave you with the objectives. And these are the treatment objectives that, that were uh, brought up by the NIH consensus meeting in 2004. One, it's really important um, to have, in order if, if problems arise with treatment of uh, celiac disease, consultation with a skilled dietitian, um, education about the disease, lifelong adherence to the gluten-free diet, identification of treatments of nutritional deficiencies, access to advocacy groups, and continuous long-term follow-up by a multidisciplinary team. Um, and these are some of uh, the organizations whose websites I find helpful. And with that, I will take questions. Sure. So the first question is how much gluten it takes to cause problems, and the second question was, um, so the gentleman has a grandson with uh, celiac disease, so he's wondering if he will outgrow it. Is that accurate? All righty, so the first question, in terms of how much gluten, it doesn't take a lot. Um, and actually, there's been studies which showing that even inhaling small amounts of flour uh, could trigger the disease. Um, the, in terms of growing out of the disease, this doesn't happen. It's uh, um, actually 
as, as far as I know, there's no report of uh, people without being treated with a gluten-free diet just on their own recovering from it. Okay, so you've had the disease now for, it was diagnosed two years ago, but presumably you had it before. Um, and you're wondering what uh, your chances are at being able to treat the disease. Well, unfortunately right now the only treatment that we have is adherence to this gluten-free diet. In most cases, respond to that. There is a small minority of cases, like uh, that last that slide where I showed you, when people don't respond to the gluten-free diet, where we need to troubleshoot and try to figure out whether it's because somehow there's gluten getting into your diet, or if there's something else on top of that, like irritable bowel syndrome, or, um, or there's lactose intolerant on top of that. So um, as long, I think what needs to happen is like you, uh, have you met with a dietitian? With a, okay, great. Um, and you know, monitoring your blood tests, making sure that you don't have anemia. Um, there are ways that we could track whether you are responding to the diet. Um, and if, if you, if, uh, things aren't healing, then they're going to require more um, further evaluation. Sorry. So in terms of the hereditary aspect, so there's clearly uh, a link between uh, people who have first-degree relatives with uh, celiac disease are more likely to have it themselves. Whether it comes from the paternal or maternal line, to my knowledge, I don't think there's been a distinction between the two. Um, it, I think it's equal on both sides. And it, it is a little bit more common in females, but it's, very, it's a very small percentage. Yes. Yeah. So um, gluten or wheat seems to cause a lot of uh, abdominal distress that's not celiac disease. And the verdict is sort of out as to exactly what is causing this. This is an intense area of research. And what we call this is gluten intolerance. Um, and uh, basically, it's, it's thought to be partly that perhaps we have allergies to uh, gluten or other wheat peptides. But the bottom line is like a lot of things get better on a gluten-free diet that aren't necessarily celiac disease. Celiac disease is this actual uh, autoimmune genetic disorder. Um, and it's defined by having you know, the genetics and also the blood tests are, are positive. Um, and also we see the injury in the small intestine. With gluten intolerance, even though uh, a gluten-free diet may make somebody feel better, the blood tests won't be positive. There won't be any injury to the small intestine. So it's a different mechanism and it's poorly understood. Yes, sir? Uh, the mechanism for the extra-intestinal manifestation is poorly understood. It's thought to be maybe some autoantibodies that are generated that somehow are attacking the body. But in term, the mainstay still is the gluten-free diet. I think um, in order, 
for to treat the other side effects, we just use whatever armamentarium we have, like uh, you know, painkillers, and there haven't really been any anti-inflammatory medications that have worked for this. So there's not really, I don't have a really good answer for that. I've had some patients report that, but it seems to be uh, many different uh, symptoms across the board. Like a lot of people experience uh, different sensations when they, some people could tell you, yeah, I know exactly when I take a bite out of something with gluten. Other people, uh, nothing really happens that will uh, alarm them. How soon do they become negative is very variable. Um, in some people, this happens within weeks. Other people, it takes years, which is one of the reasons why we can't really follow. We can't really use these serologic tests to, to follow adherence. Um, when someone's been on a strict gluten-free diet and they're serologically negative, and um, we're in cases where we really are trying to make a diagnosis, we often do a gluten challenge which means reintroducing gluten, which um, could cause a lot of distress to someone who has celiac disease because that would mean that symptoms are coming back. Um, and what a good rule of thumb would be six weeks before doing the full evaluation to try to make sure that we could... Every day and having a minimum of uh, four grams every single day. What makes gas in the intestine? Unfortunately, a lot of things. But um, partly of what we eat, so a lot of the, basically in, in the intestines, we have a lot of bacteria that help us break down uh, nutrients. And this is a, a symbiotic relationship, basically. But if we consume things that are not well digested, that could produce gas. Um, and in terms of gas in celiac disease, that's a completely variable symptom too. Some people don't report that as a, as a symptom while, while other people report bloating as a huge component of it. Yes, irritable bowel syndrome is a completely different entity from celiac disease. But sometimes the symptoms overlap. So. Um, Irritable bowel syndrome is basically a disease of exclusion. Like we, we will say that you have irritable bowel syndrome where we've ruled out all of the other things. Because um, the bottom line is there's a lot of research going on in that area, but we don't really fully understand exactly what's causing all of the symptoms. And it's an area of very intense research, and I think in the next 10 years or so we're going to have a good handle on it. Um, but with celiac disease, we basically have these set serologic tests. And, um, you know, if somebody comes to us with abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, we're obviously going to look at the blood tests and see if there's anemia, see if there's osteoporosis, and um, make the diagnosis according to the blood test and the history as well. But uh, a lot of times, um, irritable bowel syndrome is considered in somebody that has celiac disease. Yes, sir? Sorry. If, uh, if the child is on a gluten-free diet and the disease is in, in remission, they should have normal growth and development. Um, oh, she's asking whether calcium and, and um, 
vitamin D should be uh, supplemented, uh, supplemented in a person with celiac disease. Thank you very much, Dr. Fernandez. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.